Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. At Skybridge Capital, what they do is they're a fund to fund. They take money, they allocate it out to hedge funds, and they have had a sporting pandemic, as have so many others. They've made a choice now to go with familiar names like Delio, like Loeb, and like Howard Marks as well. Troy Gajewski joins us, the engineer from MIT. Troy Gajewski, how are you and Mr. Scaramucci going to engineer forward with Dalio, Loeb, Marks, and the likes? What will be different now versus the debacle of the last 12 months? Yeah, well, I don't know about 12 months, but certainly in March. But, but thanks, Tom. Okay, great tw- to hear 12 from hours. You. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, great to hear, talk to you as well, John. It's been too long. But um, no, so look, I think, you know, any process you have to evolve and you have to try to use information that perhaps wasn't sure. present at the time. And, you know, look, the, the reality is, is we fully expect a recovery. And the primary way we're going to play that is through distressed credit, both distressed structured credit, whether it's RMBS or to a much lesser extent CMBS and CLOs, or whether it's through good old-fashioned distressed restructuring. And, you know, one of the things that will be different is we'll have more exposure to larger managers that have a much more stable capital base and much more staying power if we do get another leg down uh, that some people expect in the fall. I mean, we're pretty certain the economy's bottoming and markets have bottomed, but Clearly, we could be wrong. And managers, whether it's Howard Marks or, or Dan Loeb or Josh Freeman at Canyon, I mean, these are multi-cycle distressed uh, investors that have done a tremendous job. And that's always been where you've gotten your best returns coming out of any economic dislocation. And as you guys know, like we always say, that you know, every cycle is different, but every cycle is the same. Um, and, and so you could argue that for some unknown reason, you know, the returns in distress won't be as attractive as they were in the past. But if you look at the divergence between equity markets and credit of all stripes right now, it's as large as it's been, you know, since the financial crisis, if not larger. So on a go-forward basis, that's where you're going to get your best risk-adjusted returns and doing it with managers that have strong hands that can, uh, you know, restructure individual companies or favor Structured credit versus corporate is the is we think the way to go, but we'll still maintain a healthy exposure to smaller, mid-sized managers that are laser focused on a few particular niche themes. Troy, I understand the argument that stocks and credit are diverging in ways that really haven't been seen historically. However, there are some real reasons for this. I mean, when we talk about the equity advance, we're talking about the big tech names that stand to benefit from the current environment. When you talk about some of these credit, uh, what some of these credits, you're talking about commercial mortgage-backed securities, residential real estate in big cities that are going to be profoundly changed by this entire episode. Isn't there some real reason for why some of these assets are selling off and also some reason for why some of these equities are gaining right now? Oh, yeah. No. Look, as you know, there's the real economy there's corporate fundamentals, and then there's capital markets. And to your point, you know, equity markets are becoming less and less reflective over time of the real economy. Uh, so 100%. Uh, that being said, you, I don't think anyone could rationally argue that the equity rebound has been driven by improving fundamentals for the majority of cases, particularly where multiples are. The equity rebound has been driven by massive expansion of monetary supply after suffering a, tr- a tremendous drawdown. Um, our primary focus will be on residential uh, single-family credit, 
as opposed to uh, CMBS, we will have a little bit of that exposure. We agree with you that clearly the fundamentals in hospitality or lodging and retail are very problematic. Um, but at the same time, you know, multifamilies hung in there exceptionally well. You know, a lot of the benefit of the PPP and more importantly, enhanced unemployment has, inla- has allowed renters to continue to make their payments at a, a pretty shocking rate. Now, everyone expects it's going to uh, deteriorate further in May, but so far, so good. So, you know, within commercial real estate, you have to be very specific to sector when you're doing your forward analysis. Um, and then in terms of residential housing, look, I mean, you know, coming into this, we had the best, most pristine mortgage credit in at least a generation in terms of debt to GDP or debt to income, um, if you looked at mortgage servicing costs. And, and so, obviously, there's been deterioration. Forbearance requests have gone up substantially. Um, and the market's pricing in about a 15% total forbearance request with somewhere between 2 and 5% ultimate foreclosures. Um, but as the economy recovers, we may end up with much less home price declines than were initially expected, particularly given, you know, again, when you think through the ramifications of uh, ultra-loose or hyper-loose monetary policy, you know, the, the, the likelihood of a material uh, loss of property value in residential housing is fa- fairly low. I mean, we're modeling out down 10%, but there are many forecasters that think it's going to be closer to flat or only down 5 And when you have LTVs that are as low as they were coming into this, um, even in the event of a foreclosure, which would happen, you know, say 2021, late 2021 or 2022, your recovery value would be much higher. So, you know, when, when we think through, uh, you know, let's call it non-vanilla structured credit or non-vanilla credit, residential housing is clearly going to be a big winner, as will multifamily commercial real estate. We think those sectors have the most upside by far. And then, you know, back to the conversation with regard to Loeb or a Marks or a or Josh Freeman, I mean, they're they're also very focused on corporate credit, right? And when you think of the 14% forward 12-month default rate that's going to be in high yield, you think of the 7 or 8% that's going to be present in levered loans, you know, that's going to provide them ample supply to do good old-fashioned distressed restructurings, which, again, if you look at the last two cycles or even the H.W. Bush recession, um, that was the most profitable hedge fund strategy by far. Troy, I think a lot of people will be sitting here thinking, why do I want to pay a hedge fund for that when the Federal Reserve has stepped in and the distressed opportunities aren't anything like they were after 0809? Well, look, I, I mean, I, I don't know which analysis one would suspect or suggest isn't as great as at the end of 08 or 09. Admittedly, there, there won't be the, the same returns to high yield or distressed as you did post immediately after the Lehman failure when spreads hit their wides. But spreads had tightened in quite substantially prior to 09, and you still had spectacular returns. Um, and then back to your direct point, look, the if you think of um, where high yield is today, right? So say you're an investor and you want to buy credit. Well, you're more than likely going to buy it through high yield. You're, you're at an 8% effective yield, which to your point is, is much tighter than it was coming into 2009. Um, your, your loss-adjusted yield is basically minus 2% the next 12 months when you adjust for defaults. So the better opportunity is going to be in the companies that get kicked out of the ETFs or get downgraded out of the indices that have to go through restructurings. As long as you're careful and avoid too much energy exposure, you know, that's where you'll have you know, the high teens or low 20 type returns where 
whereas to your point, if you're just sticking to liquid vanilla on the run ETFs, it's going to be much harder to put up attractive well, returns in the next several years. Troy Gajewski, thank you so much. Thanks, With Troy. Skybridge Capital, greatly appreciate it. There's a math to it in the heritage of Societe Generale and their derivatives uh, effort, their math-centric effort as well. And, of course, that's seen in their rate strategy with Subrata Rajapa, who joins us right now. Subrata, I'm going to cut to the chase on a Friday. John can ask all the fancy questions with Lisa, the real yield, the nominal yield. John, is the real yield coming back? I don't know. Hopefully soon, Tom. <laughs> Under get, careful negotiation. If, if, if we get things back together, hopefully we can bring it back soon. We get, so, Subrata, I get distracted. I want you to give me the levels on 10-year and 30-year where you really break into a sweat. Where's the 10-year level that matters, lower yield? Where's the 30-year bond yield, lower yield, where things really fall apart? Um, I'd be concerned, if, especially in the 10-year, if we break through 40 basis points. I feel like that, to me, is a low that we've seen uh, thus far during the crisis. That, I think, the, the market can manage. But I think anything below that, uh, the market, there will definitely be a, a little bit of a concern over how bad this can get. And that, you know, that would be um, you know, a, a new um, paradigm shift, in my opinion. Because what I think the, currently the market's pricing in is exactly what Fed Chair Powell said, which is a range of possible outcomes. I would say there's broader disagreement on virtually every topic of discussion, whether it be the direction of rates, inflation, inflation expectations. Now you're starting to see that even in the equity markets, there's very little agreement on the future direction of how things are headed. So I would argue that the, the, the markets are basically pricing in a range of possible outcomes. And you're seeing that borne out in some of the pricing we're seeing in the bond market. Subhadra, you could take a look at the low yields and say this is negative. It's a commentary on low expected inflation. You could also say it's a positive because the U.S. has to buy, uh, borrow a lot, a lot of money, and they're doing it at record low costs. Next week, 20-year uh, bond issuance, the first one since the 1980s, is expected to come with a yield of 1.09%. Why aren't we seeing a 50-year or 100-year issuance from the U.S.? Well, because there's really no natural buyer of 50 or 100 year bonds in the U.S. I mean, the ALM community or the asset liability managers in the U.S., like pensions and insurance companies, typically don't want to buy um, very, very long duration bonds. So really, it's, it's a question of where the demand is going to come from. And from the studies that the Treasury has done, um, as well as the uh, the uh, advisory committee, really the, the, the sweet spot for uh, issuing more is in the 20-year sector because that's really where insurance companies uh, can step in and, and take down some of the supply. Speaking of taking down the supply, Savadra, how much of this supply will the Fed be buying? Um, the Fed typically doesn't buy on uh, their own issues, but they've been sort of, uh, buying at a pace of, I would say, anywhere between seven to ten billion on average uh, for the last couple of yeah, weeks. Yeah, I just mean of the, of the, of the, in terms of size, Sabatra, not of course not participating in the primary market. I just mean in terms of size. Once they start buying these treasuries, in terms of the supply versus how much the Fed will be buying, will they be buying more than than is actually supplied by the treasury? Um, that's a very good question because it's, you know, the, the Fed has been extraordinarily careful in not sort of showing its cards. 
They had not told us or pre-announced the, the, the size of the asset purchases and for how long they're going to continue to purchase. I think the broad consensus is that if asset purchases were intended to provide liquidity, they've already accomplished that. So maybe they're continuing to sort of have skin in the game to keep interest rates low so that you don't see a pop in yields with the uh, you know, deluge of supply you're seeing hit the market. Sabrat, so I got like four questions here, but I'm going to go right to where you were. I still don't understand how a central bank affects yield curve control, which is what you're talking about. They're showing they're not they're hiding their cards because they're trying to control movements. I get that. Maybe that's a precursor to yield curve control. Do you have confidence at SockGen that any central bank can quote unquote control the yield curve? Well, I think some of the uh, you know. I mean, the U.S., for instance, or, or Japan, or even Europe, I think that, you know, you have the luxury of being a reserve currency, and, you know, people are always going to flock to safe haven assets. And there's a lot of credibility for these these large governments and, and central banks. So I think for these countries, you know, there's the, the Fed policy and Fed actions are going to keep a lid on Treasury yields. It, it really depends on you know the credit worthiness of the country and that's really where you tend to see uh yields move high i, I just don't think that's going to happen in the u.s subhadra rajapa of societe generale you've nailed it again and again when it comes to expecting yields to go lower before the pandemic when a lot of people expected them to start heading higher i want to ask you about the political ramifications for the federal reserve as it essentially monetizes the debt of the united states uh, as the former chief economist of pimco said We've had a merger of monetary and fiscal policy. We've broken down the church and state separation between the two. How consequential is that? You know, it's it's uh, it's quite consequential, and it's meaningful at the current time um, that the Fed is intervening because you know we've had, as you know, a very unprecedented rise in deficits in a very short period of time. You know, three point four trillion for fiscal year twenty twenty. And you know, two trillion plus uh, for fiscal year 2021, and this is just as of now. We're not accommodating new plans that are put forth by um, the House, and you know, I mean, the odds of that passing are probably low. But deficits could only rise from here, not you know, go lower over the next couple of years. So, in that context, you know, Fed support is extraordinarily welcome, but. I think, uh, you know, we're going to look back at this and, and, and pass judgment. But, I, but in my opinion, I feel like the Fed's doing the right thing to support the broader economy. I think a lot of people feel the same way, Sabadra. Of course, you'll always get people criticising the Fed, and I'm often on that side of things. But yeah, I think they've done a brilliant job stepping in and really alleviating some of the financial pain uh, on the financial condition side. Just to wrap things up and build on what Tom said, the Bank of Japan did a brilliant job of capping a 10-year yield in Japan, and they don't really need to participate much in the bond market now to do it. When you think of yield curve control, is that what you're thinking could happen in the United States, what we've seen play out in Japan? Absolutely. I think that that's really the, uh, the, the, the important feature, I'd say, what I desire out of yield curve control is that, you know, the communication channel works just as effectively. So the Fed doesn't have to uh, you know, continue to buy assets and, and, and blow up its balance sheet. I mean, as, as we all know, during the post-crisis period, it took the Fed a long time, over 10 years, before it could start thinking about unwinding its balance sheet. If anything, it started raising rates 
before it started unwinding its, its balance sheet. And this was a debate earlier on on what they should do first, whether they should unwind the balance sheet and then raise rates. But then they landed up raising rates and then uh, gradually unwinding its balance sheet. Uh, if the balance sheet gets to be too large, then the aspiration of ever bringing it back down is going to uh, is going to fail. So I think it, you know, yield curve control from that perspective is, is a great tool because the communication channel tends to work just as effectively as uh, as the um, as as actually going out and purchasing uh, you know treasuries to keep um, yields low. So um, I think that that's when you know once they're done exhausting, uh, once they're done you know, purchasing as much as they can, I think that they will. Uh, uh, they will try to employ yield curve control. Sabadra, fantastic to catch up with you this morning. My best to you and yours and to the whole of the team at SOC, Jen. Sabadra Japa there, the head of US race strategy, Soste as general. Andrew Hollenhorst of City joining us now. I'm pleased to say to get the latest on his perspective and the house view over at City Group. Andrew, just your first take off the back of this data, please. Yeah, wow, this is just more evidence of how deep this contraction is in April in particular and in Q2 overall. You know, I think really what we're thinking about now is not so much the April data where we knew we were going to see these big contractions. And, yeah, I mean, looking at this number, if anything, even bigger than what had been forecast. Um, But the question now is where do we go from here? Um, Can we rebound off of these? very, very negative numbers that we're seeing for April and for Q2. Andrew, I was so shocked. I forgot to bring you in and John saved me and brought you in because I'm looking at these numbers and they're absolutely shocking. From where you sit with Catherine Mann, do they change the political debate in Washington? Yeah, it's so interesting, right? We have a large fiscal package that's being debated right now. And I think the numbers do matter. I think the activity numbers matter. I think the jobless numbers matter a lot as we're thinking about unemployment insurance and what we're doing to top up incomes, which are obviously being very, very deeply impacted by this. So that yeah. debate is probably going to continue to play out over over weeks, but certainly the economic right. data plays into that. Lisa, I just got the control group in, folks. This is the number I look at. There's the, the retail sales folks is like jobless claims. Tons of data comes out. The control group is taking out the goofy stuff, gasoline, building materials, um, all sorts of different things, spam. It takes out spam. It takes out spam. The, <laughs> yes, the retail control group. We went from minus 2%, Lisa, to a survey minus 5%, and we clocked in with a minus 15%. That says it all. It's brutal. It's depressing. And I got to say, Vinny Del Judice, every time he gives one of these data reads, you can feel the weight of these numbers on his voice. Andrew, a lot of people saying we will get a big recovery when people can go out and spend. And yet, as we saw from the Chinese data overnight, it's not that simple. People aren't that willing to go to restaurants How quickly, as John was saying, how quickly can we rebound based on what we are seeing in China? Yeah, I think it's definitely not that simple for categories like restaurants, for categories like travel. And it's not that simple for the economy overall. I think we are seeing some positive signs in the U.S. now. We're watching a lot of high-frequency data that we don't usually watch daily data on things like gasoline demand, on things like driving their people driving their cars. Um, What we're hearing from auto dealerships are, that are reopening as they're seeing a similar amount of demand to what they saw before the COVID-19 downturn. So, I mean, very, very early days on this, but I think there'll be this, this very differential 
effect where you'll see some industries, some sectors that come back quickly and others, travel, restaurants are good examples where that could be a much longer story. Andrew, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal this morning, the headline, Coronavirus Finishes the Retail Reckoning that Amazon Started, and talked about the expectation for about 100,000 stores to close over the next five years, bankruptcies to surge among brick-and-mortar retailers. How much does this accelerate that trend? Yeah, I think we'll see a big acceleration of that. That that was one of our initial thoughts when stores started closing is, I think we all knew, we all expected that there would be further brick-and-mortar closings of stores in coming months and coming years. Now that you are forced to close down, there's just going to be a lot of store owners who say it doesn't make sense to reopen again. So we've seen this shift to online. We've seen the shift away from brick-and-mortar. Definitely accelerates that substantially. I mean, Tom, we've been talking about this for years. This is what we've been seeing on the avenues of New York City and Manhattan. If you go high enough up on Lexington, in fact, if you come down towards Midtown, we've seen shut storefronts for a long time. I totally agree. But Andrew, what's so important here is when the facts change, politicians change. At 8.30 this morning, six minutes ago, did the facts just change for our August politicians? Again, I I think it's probably more the labor market that's going to matter. And and in some ways, that's a good way of looking at it because you really want to think about what is the negative impact that this is having on individuals and we know that it's huge we know it's huge from the jobless claims data we know it's huge from the jobs reports that have come out already so um so again i think the economic data matter does you know one retail sales reading change significantly the political calculus i'm not sure we can make that statement Two things that I think market participants are going to really have to grapple with in the months to come. Andrew, quite clearly, quite clearly, we'll get some sequential month-on-month improvement as we work our way through summer. That's clear to everybody. How do you establish the limit to that sequential month-on-month improvement, the limits of the overall recovery, the limits of normalizing? How do you get your hands around that? Yeah, I think that's where we really need to be watching day by day and, and week to week. So, so some of this is related to how different policies ease, how quickly some activity is allowed to return to normal. And I think what we're thinking about more, and again, in the context of the Chinese data, for instance, is how quickly do behaviors change or not change. And so that's, again, it's going to be very different for for different sectors. And I can see things like auto demand is a good example. We could actually have increased auto demand because maybe more people want to be driving their cars instead of using public transport. Um, you know, there could be various shifts in the makeup of economic activity. So we have to be watching that. But how quickly does behavior go back to something that looks more close to normal? Yeah, I think right now is very uncertain and something we have to be evaluating in real time. I was struck by a survey by Open Table showing that one in every four U.S. restaurants will go out of business due to the pandemic. And I'm just struck with what's going to take up all the space that all of these restaurants and retail stores currently do, Andrew. And I know you're saying cars could be a bright spot. Is there anything else that's a bright spot? Yeah, I think there is a large amount of reallocation that's going to occur. So this is certainly not good news for any of the, you know, perhaps it could be as much as a quarter, like that survey suggested, of restaurants that are going out of business. But there is just a large shift that's going on in that sector, you know, like we were talking about in other sectors. So, you know, you may have less of the smaller restaurants um, and more restaurants that are offering more to-go service. You know, we've seen pizza delivery, right. for instance, um, which is which is increasing. Mm. Um, now, it's still a costly pro- process for the economy to go through that reallocation process. 
Um, but, you know, ultimately right. those storefronts will be occupied again. It just might be different yeah. businesses. Andrew, nobody's listening to this show this morning, so I'm, I'm not embarrassed to ask this question. But how are you going to amend your gross U.S. forecasts off of this dramatically worse retail report? Does this bring your, your judgment in by tenths of a percentage point or does it bring it in by full percentage points? So we said back in March that forecast changes are in general going to be in the percentage points week to week. So I think that's really what people should be thinking about with these numbers. You're essentially getting, you know, what would usually be, you know, months worth, if not a year's worth of economic data in terms of change to the forecast in just one of these numbers. So, you know, we can easily move our forecast by percentage points with any one number that's coming out for April. John, this is just shocking. I can't convey how unimaginable that control group statistic is. Yeah, just breaking down the numbers, Tom, all 13 major categories decreasing, led by a 78.8% drop at clothing stores, 60.6% decline at electronics and appliance stores. Really not pretty. The only category that recorded a gain, Tom, just to point out, non-store sales, of course, online, Amazon, etc., increased 8.4%. I don't want to get in a shout fest on uh, uh, politics, but I would defer everybody to Dr. Hooper and his esteemed experience, or Catherine Mann at Citigroup, Hooper at Deutsche Bank, John, on $3 trillion to them, to those people, in a lot of money. I mentioned to Jennifer Rome of UCL in London today, the great virologist there, Andrew Pecos of the Johns Hopkins University, and of course at the Bloomberg School of Public Health there. I should mention Mr. Bloomberg is a founder of Bloomberg LP, this radio, this television property as well, and is a philanthropist to his Johns Hopkins University. And I was talking to Dr. Rome about Andrew Pekosh and the idea of testing and the view forward of how we judge our virology in America. Let's listen. A few things came up yesterday in terms of the efficiency of testing and the accuracy of testing. Um, I'll emphasize something that I've tried to emphasize before. Um, The test matters, but who gives the test and who um, is is also important. And one has to understand that just because someone has a test for COVID-19 doesn't mean that it's an accurate test and doesn't mean that it's being uh, performed accurately. And I think, you know, we have to think about moving to a different way of monitoring for disease um, as we're trying to open up the economy. We're no longer going to be chasing cases. We want to get ahead of the cases. We want to find individuals who are ill and then start testing the people they've come in contact with so we can identify them earlier, quarantine them, and limit the spread of the virus in that way. How do we do that in America with our social history? The public health interventions um, are difficult. It's very clear to me and my family, actually, how difficult this has been. But these are the necessities. Um, What other countries have, have demonstrated is if you loosen these public health parameters and you're not ready to institute large amounts of testing in a very different way than we're doing it now, then you'll see these bounce backs, and we do risk the 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 um, the um, the the, um, op- the chance to um, to recover quickly. Now, if we fall back and go back into three or four weeks of um, public health uh, of, of a stay at home, um, that effect of the economy will be much greater than trying to slowly come back into it right now. 
Dr. Pekosh, what do we know about antibody testing? I mean, I know I keep on asking about it, but it seems key to know how, what percentage of the population have had this and whether they're immune. When will we actually have a clearer picture? What are some of the testing or schemes out there? Yeah, you're absolutely correct in terms of asking this question because it will be one of the things that uh, has the potential to really change the way we approach this, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the outbreak. Um, there seems to be lots of data coming out from many different uh, places showing that um, most people who are infected with the COVID with COVID nineteen do have antibody responses, so their body responds. Um, they have decent levels of the antibodies that we think are the protective antibodies. So so far things are looking good in terms of uh, how people are responding immunologically to the infection. Um, what we really need to know now is how long these responses are going to last. Do, are they going to fade in a few months or are they going to stay for a year or longer? Um, and we also need to monitor these people who are antibody positive to see if they can become reinfected. That'll be the proof that says that some of these antibody tests are actually telling us what we want them to tell us, which is that if you're antibody positive, you won't be able to be infected at least very easily with the virus. Do we have any idea of you know, whether the, the antibody test is positive, how long you're immune to this virus? Is it something that we'll just have to live with? Is this the, the kind of seasonal flu that, you know, that we'll see kind of year, year in and year out in various mutations? Right now, the virus hasn't seen uh, a large amount of people who have immunity to it. Um, so what do I mean by that? There's so many of us that have no immunity to it that the virus is easily finding those people and infecting those people. Um, somewhere over time, as more and more people get infected, it's going to start seeing people that have antibodies to the virus. And the big question then is, will this virus respond like influenza does? And mutations will accumulate and the virus will find a way to get around that immunity? Or will it respond to the ways that some of the, our other more classic viral infections like measles does and you will continue to be protected from infection and the virus won't be able to infect you? So that's the big question that we want to ask about the, about the virus. And again, that's another question that's just going to take some time for us to get an answer to. Andrew Pekos of the Johns Hopkins University. Just a brilliant conversation there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.